If you have a Bible, if you could open up to Acts chapter 17, we're going to be continuing in our study this morning. Uh, Daniel, there is a blinking button here and it says tap on it. And um, what would happen if I actually tapped it? It would still blink. If you guys see me just staring, yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's years of friendship right there. <laughs> that would have just thrown me off all morning. Um, well, sometimes in the Bible, not just in the Bible, in life, the way that we talk about things, we often highlight one thing by comparing it to something else. You put two things next to each other to compare or contrast. Uh, by way of emphasis, like Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about in verses 1 through 3, the destiny of the unrighteous. And then starting in 4 with, but God, it transitions and it gives the destiny of the righteous, those who are the elect, those who are in Christ. A lot of the Proverbs sets up, <clears throat> the foolish man does this, or the uh, unwise man does this versus the wise man does this. Jesus would often give parables where he would talk about the unforgiving man looks like this and the forgiving man looks like this. Well, the passage that we're looking at in Acts chapter 17 actually puts two churches side by side and it's comparing living out our life in Christ by looking at two churches. And you could see that the two churches were intended to be compared. If you skip down to verse 11, it says, Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, the previous church it was just talking about. They examined the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if it was so. So there's these two churches side by side, and it's contrasting the approach of these two different churches. And one of the main points that I'm going to be getting at all the way down near the end of the sermon, and I just didn't feel right waiting till the end of the sermon, so I'm going to preach the end of the sermon first, is the, the big difference between these two churches that we're about to see put next to each other in order to be contrasted was the posture in which they received God's word. It says it right in verse 11. There was this eagerness that they received the word with. So really you have a case of people that are receiving the word with eagerness versus those who are building up defenses in their heart to stand in rejection against God's word. Word And really one of the main emphasis about the Berean church is they received the word with eagerness. So I don't want to wait until the end to actually call you to contemplate this and consider the ramifications of this before we look at this passage together. Uh, I've been at services where I've walked in just, just hurting in my heart, and then there's this time for prayer at the end, and, and, and I just wish that that time of prayer might have been there in the beginning, because it, it was a necessary time of prayer, and it was just this release, but I sat there kind of distracted the whole time, and it made me think, well, why don't you put the end first? So I'm going to do that with this passage, and just strongly encourage you if you have not contemplated coming here to receive the word with eagerness please just stop for a moment that's the beauty of, of the gospel that's the beauty of the holy spirit you can stop rewind the tape and let's begin 
over. Let's not make that be the conclusion at the end of the sermon. After you hear it all, then you hear at the end, the conclusion is receive this with eagerness. Receive what with eagerness? That which you just listened to 40 minutes ago. That doesn't really make sense, right? So I want to actually stop and encourage you to just look at your heart and ask yourself, did you take a moment this morning to actually look at the posture of your heart and to ask yourself if you are coming here to receive from God with eagerness. We're not just here because it is Sunday and it is the religious exercise that we do at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. We're here because we believe God is here. And by extension, we want to be where God is. We want to be around God's people. We want to hear from God's word. But we want our hearts to be in a place where it's not just going ping and popping off and landing on the floor. We want it to come in here and just soak and marinate and receive it with eagerness. Amen? So, conclusion. If you're wondering what the conclusion can be, um, you're welcome to leave. That's where I'm going to arrive at by the end of the sermon. That's why preachers don't give the conclusion first. Um, But may we have hearts that are eager to receive his word this morning. I'm going to pray. God, I pray for that deep, deep, deep eagerness. God, that's just not a prayer that you're ever not going to answer when we're eager to meet with you. We're here to meet with you. Come and meet with us. Go past perfunctory religious expressions and actually be the God who is real, who is manifest right in our presence. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So as we look at these two churches, there's actually a lot of similarities between the way that Paul engaged the two. Look at me at uh, 17, starting in verse 1. It says, And when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, and as was his custom on the three days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. If you look down at verse 10, the brothers immediately sent for Paul and Silas by night to Berea, And they went and they arrived and they went into the Jewish synagogue. And once again, he starts preaching about Jesus. So Paul's missionary approach to both churches and to all churches, if you read through the book of Acts or his epistles, is similar. He goes down to the synagogue. He takes the people that were Greek Jewish converts, mostly. That's who we're dealing with in these texts by this portion of Acts He starts to reason with them from the Old Testament because, remember, the New Testament didn't exist yet. Um, The New Testament's happening. That's a pretty cool thought, isn't it? I was actually thinking about what the content was that Paul was preaching from this week as I was putting together the message and thinking through, like, what was the Bible that he brought with him? And thinking through the fact that it was, of course, the Old Testament scriptures, but also as he was doing whatever this was, Biblical narrative was actually being written through his experience that was going on. Just a mind-blowing kind of thing. But he, same approach, goes into the synagogue, begins 
to teach for the people who are gathered there for their religious expression of worship. The demographics are similar. So before you go out and plant the church, one of the things that I have to assess church planners on is did you do a demographic study? Do you know the people that you're going to plant to? Because a church that is planted in Belize is going to look different from a church that's planted in Nova Scotia. The gospel is going to be the same, but you're going to have a different people. You're going to contextualize the gospel differently, so you're going to want to do some demographic studies. Here the demographics are pretty similar that he's dealing with. You're dealing with Greek converts uh, or Jewish converts amongst the Greeks. The content of the message is similar. Look at verse 3. It says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. You can be sure that any time Paul opens his mouth to give a sermon, it's going to be a one-point sermon. That dude, if he had a guitar, it would be a one-string guitar. The dude plucks one note, and it's Jesus, 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 Jesus. And that's what he makes this beeline to in verse 3. He starts preaching his one-point sermon. He says, hey, I'm here. I want to tell you something. Jesus. Look through any of other Paul's sermons. He says, I want to tell you about this good news, Jesus. I want to tell you about this friend that I met, Jesus. It's always the same sermon. He doesn't disappoint. And if you want to hear a sermon about Jesus, point to anything that Paul is preaching. It's always going to be about Jesus. You should be able to say that about just coming to church and hearing any sermon in general, right? I mean, there's always going to be a hero of the story. So either Jesus is going to be the hero of the story, and we leave here, and yay, Jesus. Or we make a testimony to man, and man is the hero of the story, and we all lose. Well, Paul was very careful. Let's make sure we're making the right hero of the narrative. The hero is Jesus. So the content of the message is similar in both places, but check this out. The results are not the same. I mean, you look at these two passages next to each other, and it is such a beautiful and clear example of why God calls us to faithfulness and doesn't call us to results. I mean, right here in your Bibles, you have two churches side by side, two similar groups of people, the approaches are the same, and the results belong to God. Let that serve as an encouragement to any of you out there. I I know that there's families, I've sat and I've prayed with you, who are just tilling hard soil with hard family members or tilling hard soil at work, and you just continued to have this consistent message of Jesus, 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 even going on decades, and it just feels like it's bouncing off of the walls. Let this be an encouragement for you that sometimes as you're faithfully laboring for the gospel and wondering where the measurables are, that God is looking at your faithfulness. Sometimes the measurables don't have quantitative things like nickels and numbers and noses. That's not always the way that God looks at it. In fact, it's one of the reasons that I hate going to church planning conferences. I mean, it it never fails. You put a bunch of church planter alpha males in a room, and you could be talking about anything, and all of a sudden it's going to turn into a conversation of the size of your church, all the trophies that you have on your wall for the kingdom, 
all the things that you've done that make you outstanding. I can't, one time I went to a conference solo, which was not good for my heart because I struggle in environments like that anyway. And it was back when, you remember internet lounges? You know, when you didn't just have a Wi-Fi pinged right to your pocket. So I'm sitting in the internet lounge, and I'm just watching this conversation and listening to it unfold. Like, I have a church of a thousand. Oh, a thousand. Oh, I've got a thousand in my youth ministry alone. Oh, your youth ministry. I've got a thousand in my junior high. And these guys are just, oh, and it's just so pathetic to watch. And thankfully, this older brother comes in. He's just like, tell me the last time that Jesus was big to any of you. And they're all like, yeah, well, that, 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 that's what I was going to get to. Like, the size of my church is so big because Jesus is awesome. And, you know, it just shows you that sometimes that culture of I need some kind of quantitative mark to be able to prove to you my faithfulness doesn't actually miss, hit the mark. And it could be very far from the heart of God. So instead of measurables being the same metrics that the world uses, how about things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I think if you look at those as your measurables and your metrics, you're never ever going to go wrong. Because you have and Paul could have gotten all sorts of out of sorts. Well, why, why did it not work here in Thessalonica? It worked over here, and it worked over here, and it worked over here. And why is it working in Berea? Well, because it's not because of you, Paul. It's 100% Jesus. And when we keep our eyes on that, it keeps us from getting screwy places that we don't belong. But from looking at both passages, there's two things that you can count on if you're going to make your life about the gospel. One is that God will demonstrate his power and goodness through the spirit-filled, spirit-led proclamation of his word. He always will. His word will not return to him void. It might not always look like the purpose that we think that it's going to look like. But if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. So if you lift up the Son of Man, that is one thing you can be sure of. He's going to draw people to himself. And the second thing that you can be sure of is that you will face opposition. It might not always look the same, but it's pretty clear in scriptures that all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. It might not come from the same angles. It might not always look the same. I mean, for instance, as you look at verses 4 through 8, this is violent in this situation. He says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So there's some converts as did a many, great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set a city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. Poor Jason, as Daniel pointed out this week, the only time he makes an appearance in the New Testament is just to get a beaten, and then he goes away. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, and they let 
them go. So uh, there's always going to be opposition. You will face opposition in this life if you decide, I'm going to live flat out for the gospel, uncompromised. This life's going all in on Jesus. I've tasted what it tastes like not to go all in on Jesus. It's not that impressive. So I'm going to choose the other direction, and I'm putting in all the chips, all for Christ, all to him, all to his glory. If that's the decision you're making, praise God. First of all, that's awesome. But there will be opposition that comes along, and sometimes it's a surprise. Sometimes it comes from the places you least expect. Sometimes it even comes from confusing places, like this was coming from the people they used to worship with. That's what's happening here. These people that used to go to the synagogue together are turning their backs against each other and having a religious fight, and these baby Christians are caught in the middle of it. Look, as long as we have an enemy of our souls, there will be a message out there trying to undermine your faith in Jesus. This was a direct assault, but there's a lot of other tactics. These guys use the mob mentality. They gather a mob to add validity to their argument. That's something that you see from toddler all the way up to Christians who act like toddlers as adults. Often when people are not armed with truth, they try to arm themselves with a mob mentality, right? I mean, if I can't be right, I'll just be more. And if I'm more, then eventually more means right. And that's what they're trying to do here when lacking evidence, just be louder and form a mob. But Paul actually gets, or Luke gets into the motivations here. He says that they're doing this because they were jealous. So I just want to take a moment before we hit on the Bereans to look at some of the faulty motivations to come against the pure preaching of the word. Uh, Luke uses the word jealousy in verse 5, but it can be power. You see that throughout the New Testament that the people that were the power brokers were not happy about this upside-down kingdom that Jesus was coming in, and he's saying these crazy things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the meek, and blessed are the persecuted, because my kingdom is going to get squarely given to them, and the people that were in power didn't like the sound of that kingdom, because they liked the one that they built, so they try to preach another narrative. It could be control. It can be tradition. I mean, how many of you, I don't want you to raise hands, but how many, when you came to Christ, you came to Christ and you were steeped in a different religious tradition. If you grew up in this area, that's probably the case. Sometimes it's not celebrated or applauded when you came to Christ. Some of your stories might actually be that you had family members that are saying, well, this isn't this great thing. You know, you, you've always kind of believed in Jesus. You were, you were raised in the church. Why is this new Jesus thing so big? And why is this different than the way I did Jesus? And what are you saying? I'm wrong? And man, that family tradition and family identity can really begin to throw a subversive curveball to a new faith. Subversive curveball. I want to memorize that. That's pretty good. Um, Really, most of it comes down to uncomfortability with the concept of grace. Whenever you see an uprising in Scripture, it's almost always because people were uncomfortable with grace. That's what provoked the jealousy here. 
What do you mean these pagans get to just come in and be on the same equal footing as us? We worked to get We've been good. We said no to all the things they said yes to. And you're telling me that this new grace thing means that if they just believe in Jesus, that they're on the same footing as I am? No way. Go back. Go back to go. Don't collect $200. And you go and be good for a little while. Then we'll all believe in Jesus. And then we can be uncomfortability with this notion of grace is something that was just an epidemic the New Testament and I'm going to tell you if you're preaching grace as radical as grace is supposed to be preached it's still going to make people uncomfortable today it's not like we look at these people in the Bible and they're like silly pagans that didn't understand grace we really get grace John Piper said each of us is just a bored little legalist I love that phrase um, we have to remind ourselves of grace. And grace does not come natural for us. But the preaching of grace still ends up exposing hearts, just like it did in this passage. So as we move on, I want to point out an insult that they said before we move on to the Berean church. that was actually being used as a word of derision against them. It says... In verse 6, these men who have turned the world upside down come here also. So there's two major compliments that you're going to see that were given to the Berean church and one insult that's given to the Thessalonian church. And that one insult might actually be more powerful than the two compliments. But I want to be clear that this is an insult that they're saying in verse 6. This is an idiom. Idioms don't always translate the same from one culture to the next. If you don't believe me, go to one of your Spanish friends afterwards, who Spanish is their primary language, and talk about keeping your nose to the grindstone. And they're going to be like, that's morbid. That, that's, that, that, see, that, that doesn't translate across to, their, to the culture. So uh, just an example. We've got an idiom here. Idioms do not always translate across. So when they're saying to turn the world upside down, we don't mean that. They didn't mean it the way that we use it in our modern vernacular. This was not a compliment. This isn't like, wow, these guys who turned the world upside down. They're here with us. This, this isn't a positive example. This was intended to be an insult. Think about this for a second. It, it was a powerful insult that could only be said of somebody that was actually observing the world being turned upside down and sharing this insult from a first-person perspective. Take yourself back there by faith in a moment. Put yourself on the scene. There's no media there's no news coverage. It's not like they read about it on Facebook that, hey, these guys were over there turning the world upside down, and my friend just posted that they're about to be in Thessalonica too. We better go check their world tour because it's supposed to be insane. No, the world is actually being turned upside down in front of them. They are seeing this go on. The reason they could say this is because this radical group of nut jobs who is preaching about a different king, a king named Jesus, is actually transforming all that they've ever known of what the world to look like. So what they're saying is these men 
are part of the reason behind this new King Jesus that's turned the world upside down. And take it a step further, they're saying the world was one way, but now, because of their adherence to this King Jesus, everything is different. And these men are telling that story. So put it all together, their accusation is these men that tell the story of the King that changed the world as we know it are now here in our midst. Man, think of some of the issues that people have with the church today. Do they have those issues because they look at the church as a place that's turning the world upside down? Most people, I'm just going to tell you, I don't know how much you just run in veins of non-Christians. Most people see the church as the ultimate protector of the status quo. If you want to know what the opposite of rebellion is, what I guess status quo, would that be the opposite of rebellion? That's what most people view the church as, as a place where we passively come to be neutered so that we don't make a stink in society. That's what most people think the church is. I'll actually read you a quote, but they basically think that this is a me too churnout mill. And we're just trying to churn out a bunch of automatons that just go about their life. They don't see that this place is dangerous or in any danger of turning the world upside down. Dawkins was quoted as saying that he does not hope to abolish Christianity, but to help people see just how powerless their hobby is and to see that it holds no more need in society than a knitting club or stamp collecting group or any other powerless hobby. It's not intended to be something that should have universal significance. Richard Dawkins. That's how, I mean, that's an extreme articulation of it, but that's not the same as saying these men are turning the world upside down. These people saw a message of Jesus as something that they're saying the world is completely different because of Christianity. So let me just ask you a few questions. What's different in our world as a result of the gospel? And there's a lot of things you could point to. You could say hospitals, um, fire departments, caring for the sick, caring for the poor, orphanages. Those things are all there as a result of the gospel. The world didn't just spring out social programs, right? The church used to take care of those things. What's different in our world in recent years because of the gospel? That's what I struggle over. I don't have as many answers. I find myself kind of going backwards and, and looking at movements of yesteryear when there was something really substantial that was going on. Well, what's different in your world? Is your Christianity a thing that's turning your world upside down? I mean, when Jesus came into my life, I was so wrecked afresh that there was no stone. I didn't want him to just come up and churn up and unturn, turn it all upside down. Set, just make this new. That was the cry of my heart. So I want to ask you, is that where Jesus has been in your heart? Is he turning you upside down where you get to say, ah, I'm wrecked afresh yet again. Here I stand, just laid bare at the cross yet again. And the gospel is just still so good to you, turning your world continually upside down. I look at this passage and I'm filled with hope. 
I don't want to just plant a church. I want to see Redeemer plant churches that will plant churches and make disciples that will make disciples that will eventually see the Jersey Shore turned upside down. And I, I hate the fact that Snooki is more famous than Jesus in my hometown. Does that bother anybody? I mean, man, just to see this place, to hear people say the Jersey Shore. Isn't that the place where this great movement of the Spirit's going on that's turning the world upside down? Do you long for that? Do you long to be a part of that? Man, I just get so excited and filled with hope. And then we see them go on to Berea, and I'll take five minutes to wrap up the Bereans, even though they are the people that the passage is really more about. But I started by talking about them, so now I'm just going to circle around See a big difference between the way that the Thessalonians and the Bereans received the word, and the biggest difference is the Thessalonians received the word with eagerness. Look at verses 10 through 11. It says, And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble in Thessalonica, who received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few of the Greek women of high standing as well as men, but when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there, and those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy... To come to him as soon as they departed. We're going to pick up on that next week. But what this phrase to receive the word with eagerness. What does the heart posture of receiving the word with eagerness look like? The major difference, like I said in the beginning, between these two churches is one received the word with eagerness and one of them did not. So, so what did it look like for the Bereans? to receive the word with eagerness. It meant that they were actually students of the word so that when they came to the word, they were able to judge the word by the word because they had made it a practice to be people of the Bible. That's what it looked like for the Brians. And because they received it with eagerness, they were able to test the message. And it actually says they were noble and they were arriving at noble conclusions seeing that Jesus really is the Messiah. Remember, when we're talking about the Bereans, they didn't have the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. And they're seeing, just from the prophecies about Jesus, that this Jesus really is the bee's knees that Paul is talking about. That he really is as awesome and worth going all in for as Paul was talking about. So, <clears throat> what it really looks like, the difference between the two churches, is heart posture. And we can come to the Word with a lot of different heart postures. Indifference, pride. Somebody that's been studying the Bible for a while and has gone to seminary and stuff, I could tell you just how natural the inclination is for pride. Because when I got to this passage about the Bereans, I even thought, well, people that have been Christians for years have heard about the Bereans a bunch of times. What do I do to kind of make sure to put a different spin on this text? And it's one of those moments where the Lord just hits you and says, how about you just preach the simplicity of the Word and stop being prideful? And then you repent. But, man, it can be really easy to approach the word with 
I just want to share something new. And it can be easy for you to sit under the word like, ah, I've heard it a bunch of times. Let me hear something new as the things that are new or the things that actually transform us. What could further from the truth, guys, the truths that transform you are very, very ancient. Our job is not really to sit and learn about anything new. It's to really understand the things that are very, very old. Um, but that pride can still come up. But what it comes down to is when you hear the word, do you make a decision in your heart to come under the word? Or would you rather stand in judgment above it? If something's preached here this morning, and you hear where your word and your life do not line up in an area, do you look at it like the word is right? Period. We don't need to change that statement or modify it or adapt it or anything. The word's right, and I'm the one that needs to change. Not changing the word to be able to meet up with my life. I remember sitting with this guy a couple years ago, and he was talking to me about the creation narrative, and he just started to want to chip away at Genesis and chip away at Genesis, and he's asking me about the age of the earth and the interpretation and this and this, and... It was one of those moments where you just kind of get a prophetic insight. And I said, you're just trying to chip away at the word because you have some kind of sin in your life that you want to validate. And if we could chip away at the authenticity of the word, then you're able to just go and live however you want when you leave here and not have to feel any conviction about it. And then we ate our burrito. Um, If you heard the word and your life didn't line up, which is bending when you leave here? Is the word bending or is your name bending to be able to come under the word? So I want to ask you, are you taking the time to receive the word with eagerness? Did you stop and pray for the condition of your heart before you come here? Guys, I, you don't start even preparing your heart Sunday morning. I can remember just, even as a very young Christian Saying no to things on Saturday night because I was like, you know, if I say yes to this, I'm just going to be all shot. I'm going to be a mess when I come to church tomorrow. And, and I started preparing my heart on Saturday for coming to worship on Sunday. I'm not saying that to make myself look awesome. I'm saying that because preparation of our heart to be able to come before the word and come before the table and receive the elements should be something more than just a passing thought as we walk into the building. So I pray that there's time of preparation of the heart. Because that's what it means to receive the word with eagerness. You don't just show up without giving any thought. And the brands were like, hey, we're eager. No, that eagerness was because they had been marinating in eagerness. If, did you stop and pray for the condition and posture of your heart? If you didn't, would you now? If you're just hearing that. If you heard an area where your life and the scriptures were not lining up, would you actually purpose to make the necessary changes? And do you know the word or put yourself in a place where you're able to examine the scriptures and see that it's so? I just wanted to make sure, when I wanted to preach about the Bereans today, I wanted to be just so careful to hit on that word eagerness because I've heard the word Berean used uh, throughout Christianity to discuss people that just really knew their Bibles, and that's awesome. We need to see an increase in biblical literacy because Jesus is the Word that became flesh to dwell among us, and as we get to know the Word, we get to know Jesus. But it has to be both. It can't just be biblical literacy for literacy's sake and knowledge for knowledge's sake. There has to be a receptiveness where our heart posture is saying, I want to receive Jesus 
as I receive this word. And that's what we're going to do as we take communion. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much that we get to just come and now symbolically receive what you have done for us. Celebrate it. Thank you for it. Lord, may we come with a heart posture of eagerness and humility as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.